treasures in heaven, not treasures here on earth. When I say treasures here on earth, do you know what a treasure here on earth is, Griffin? Can Dallas tell me what a treasure here on earth is? Can, 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 can anyone tell me what a treasure here on earth is? What are treasures? Treasures are the deeds and things that we do here on earth. To build up treasures so that one day we can all be in heaven. So what can we do? We can give our money to the poor. 
we can we can go visit the sick. What about helping? What about helping just elderly? By doing what? What can you help by the elderly people? The older people. What can you do for them? You can help them with like you can help with yard work. Yard work. That's you a great way. You can help them if they can't walk. That's right. And what if what if they what if they're about to go through a really heavy door? What can you do? You can open it. You can open it. You sure can. You can always be there to help open the door. And do you know what? It does, that doesn't even have to be with an elderly person. Anybody. Anybody. That's showing your manners. That is showing your manners. Can you be a friend to someone who's lonely? Yes. If we you're exactly right. If a small child is thirsty, then you can help share a water or drink with them. What about saying I'm sorry when you've hurt someone? If you've hurt someone and you've done something that you shouldn't have done, can we can we tell them we're sorry and then ask yep. God to forgive if us too? Somebody's on the bench at school and they don't have any. Yes. And look, whatever you do, don't ever forget those things as you grow up and grow older. Okay? Seriously. We do not forget those things because those right there are blessings. These are the things, these, these are the things that, that, that um, Dallas and Bobby have just said. These are the things that spread God's love. This is spreading Jesus' love. When you see someone that's on a bench, that's lonely, doesn't have a friend, and, and one of these go over and you play with them, you show them that you love them. You show them that they care for them. If you, if you hold the door for someone, if you do something for someone else, that is showing Jesus' love. That's building treasures in heaven. We don't need a lot of money. We don't need 10 pairs of shoes. You're right. We don't need those things. What we need is to spread God's love. If somebody doesn't have shoes, you can give them some of your shoes and you can give some of them. And you can get them some of your clothes. That's right. Because there are a lot of boys and girls who aren't blessed and who don't have the nice clothes and shoes that you do. And if we're always willing to share, then that, that is showing Jesus' love to us. Okay, we'll take care of that now. All right. All right. Um, can we pray? Our Heavenly Father, please watch over and take care of these children. Watch over and take care of them in a special way always, dear Lord. I ask you to bless them. I ask for you to please keep them safe and well and close to you, dear Lord. The things that they've said today, dear Lord, they came from their heart. Dear Lord, I pray that they be strong enough to show it to the rest of the world and to school as they go back through the school doors, dear Lord. Please, please keep them safe. Keep them all safe, dear Lord. Keep the, keep the devil away as long as you can from them. God bless those that are sick. I ask you to please strengthen them and bring them back to us safely soon, dear Lord. Keep us all safe and well and forever close to you. For it's in your name I pray. Amen.
If you'll turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, the choir kind of got me thinking this morning. Before, before I turn there, I would like to just find a passage of Scripture and, and, and read it to you because it, it's of utmost importance uh, in our spiritual walks. It's of utmost importance for salvation, but it's also of utmost importance for um, growing in our walk with the Lord. And, um, and if I can get my, my Bible to turn right off. The uh, sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5. And these are Jesus' words, right? So um, definitely of up, utmost importance. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek or the lowly, because they shall inherit the earth. And then listen to this one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, in America, um, there's some of us here who probably understand what hunger and thirst really is. But America, in America, because we've been blessed by God for so many centuries, we don't truly understand hunger and need. Unless we find ourselves in a, like on a mission trip going to help, let's say, in Kentucky, right? Or in Grace Ministries. Right? Then, then we catch a glimpse of what hunger and thirst might look like. And it was awesome that that song about, you know, Jesus feeding those who are hungry. But understand something, guys. Unless we come to the place spiritually that we actually hunger for righteousness, then we won't be filled. Right? Unless we are poor in spirit, in other words, we recognize we don't have what it takes. Right? In other words, until we come to recognize our need, we won't search for a Savior. We won't reach out for something to grasp onto. And so that, the choir got me thinking about that. And here's how it fits with what we've been talking about. Today, based on how much time we have, I would like to once again do a two-part, do the beginning of a two-part sermon. And I'm hoping that today God opens our eyes to our hunger and our need. 
So hopefully when we get back together next week, maybe we can feast a little more on what God has because we've been hungry all week long. Does that make sense? So it's another one of those sermons. So Colossians chapter 1. to start in verse 21 and it says and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And so we've, the last several weeks, been talking about, first we talked about our need. We were once alienated, right? Darkened in our understanding and our way of thinking. And it showed itself in the way we lived it out in our works, our wicked works. But we talked about how Jesus coming and dying, taking our punishment, brought reconciliation between us and God. We were dead in our trespasses, as Ephesians 2 says. And through the shed blood of Jesus, we were brought into a right relationship with God and we were made alive in our spirit to actually live for him. But you know, so many times in our Christian walk, that's exactly where we stop. We get excited about salvation, and rightfully so. But we forget that there's a whole lot of Christian life to live afterwards. And Paul spends a whole lot of time talking about it. And a lot of times in the church, we gear ourselves towards salvation. Ernie, preach a salvation message. Ernie, give an invitation. Ernie, I want to see people get saved, right? Which we do. And even revivals nowadays, we gear those towards getting people saved. But I, I just want to reframe that for a second too. Revivals are bringing back to life something that was already living and has kind of died away. Revivals are not designed for the unchristian. Revivals are designed for the body of Christ to experience God in a fresh way and be made alive again so that they can affect the lives of the non-Christian. And you know what? To be honest with you, our gathering here on a Sunday morning is for who? Believers, right? Now, hopefully, as we do what we do, the fallout from that will be the unbelievers coming to Christ, but it'll be because God is working in our midst, taking us 
from where we are now to where he wants us to be. And as he does that, the byproduct will be those around us getting to know him. But Sunday mornings are not for the unsaved. Sunday mornings are for the body of Christ to fellowship together, to build one another up, to be in his presence so that he ministers to us, lifts us up, and prepares us to do what we have to do out there. Does that make sense? Yes. And so there's a whole lot, like a lot of Paul's letters, most of them, I guess, the whole first couple of chapters will be Paul presenting the good news of the gospel and the theological implications of it. And then the whole back half of his letters are always, how do you practically live that out? Right? Ephesians 1 through 3. Or 1 and 2 especially. Some of 3, but as you get into 3, 4, and 5, and 6, it's how you live out all the theological truths that he presented in the first couple chapters. Romans. Romans. We read Romans 3 last week together and the week before. The whole first part of the book is this is what God has done for you in light of your sinfulness. These are the theological truths that are bedrock for your faith. Now, the back half, some of that, Romans 8. Romans, Romans 5, uh, uh, 6 and 7. Like Romans 7 is the chapter where he says, man, the things that I wish I want to do, I don't do, and I'm supposed to do, and I don't do them. Who's going to set me free from this? Because I'm supposed to be living this way, and yet I'm living this way. And Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for God sets you free. What the law couldn't do, he did through sending Jesus, his son. And so he begins to flip it around. What is the practical implication of the theological truths that he lays out? So we talked about reconciliation to Christ. But then Paul throws in here, he reconciles you, he takes you from your alienated enemies in mind, wicked works, and through the shed blood of Jesus reconciles you to God the Father. He makes you right with God the Father. Your relationship with God the Father is restored. And now what he wants to do, he doesn't stop there. He wants to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Do y'all catch that? Holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, if I can see if I can convey some of these terms for you. But, but, but before I do, I want you to flip back to Leviticus. Or as I do, I should say. Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Now, the Lord calls to Moses, verse 1, 
and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting. Now, I want you guys to understand from all that I've said in the past about the tabernacle, this was the tent that Moses, God gave Moses the explicit directions of how to make because he wanted God's holy presence to, to dwell amongst his people. Right? And see, there's a problem. His people weren't holy. And so there had to be a way where God's presence could still be with his people even though they weren't holy. And so what he did is he devised a sacrificial system. I mean, it was already in his mind. And he devised a perfect place and had Moses build everything to a T so that his presence could sit in the midst of a sinful people. Now remember, as I've described before, let's picture this church um, sanctuary as the tabernacle. And up in the front, there would be a veil. And behind that veil would be the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the two angels with their wings stretched over on top. In that Ark was where they placed Aaron's... Uh, budding rod, and the manna that they saved from the wilderness, okay, and the Ten Commandments which they broke. We're in that ark. And then there was a veil. And that was the only thing in that room. And if you keep reading Leviticus, you will find out that they could only enter that room once a year. And I've read that they even tied a rope around the priest's foot because if there was any sin whatsoever or misplaced anything, God could kill it. His very holy presence would kill the priest and they had to have a way of pulling him back out from the veil if that were to happen. You're talking about sheer holiness of what you and I have no clue. No clue. And, and before he could even enter, things had to be done. Like on the outside of that veil, it, that, that place behind the veil was called the Holy of Holies. The place outside the veil is called the Holy Place. And there was an altar of incense and they would have to burn a certain mixture of um, spices and perfumes and things, and that scent had to waft its way into the Holy of Holies, kind of preparing your way for that. And then outside of this, and there was a table of showbread, a couple other pieces of furniture that I'm not even prepared to talk about this morning. But as you get outside of that holy place, so you have the holy place, and then the veil, and then the Holy of Holies, so those two rooms that are on the inside, as you get outside the holy place, you get into the courtyard. And before you could even get to the holy place was a huge bronze altar. And that is where you would sacrifice the lamb or the sheep or the bull or whatever it was. You would slit its throat. But before you did that, actually, let's, let's keep reading for just a minute. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. 
He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now watch this, verse 4. He shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of me. You catch that? And so what would happen? Now, now, now get this picture. Get this picture. Let's say you and I were bringing a burnt offering to the Lord. I would have to take the knife. I would lay my hand on the head of that burnt offering and I would confess my sins. That animal would symbolize taking my sins. And then I myself would have to slit the main artery on the neck of that bull or cow myself. Can y'all get that picture? So Ernie, why is that so important? Well, because in that, like if I'm, if I'm bringing a sin offering, I'm the one killing the offering because of my actions. And guys, if you can picture us standing at the cross with a nail in one hand and a hammer in the other, that's the picture. Because of our own sinfulness and our unholiness. And we would be the ones crucifying the sacrifice. And so we would slit the artery of the one that's dying in our place and then that blood would get sprinkled all on the altar because remember, without the shedding of blood, the consequence of sin has always been death and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, none. And that blood would provide us entry into the tabernacle and once a year, this priest with a rope tied around his foot, would enter through the veil and sprinkle blood on top of that broken law, on top of those commandments on the mercy seat, and it would cleanse everything for God's presence to come and reside. But I want you to catch this idea of a sacrifice without blemish. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. Okay? Now remember when he talked about the Passover, it's the same thing. You pick a one-year-old male lamb without blemish. If you keep reading the next several chapters up to like chapter 7 of Leviticus, it goes through all the different offerings and you'll see just about every time in there it says whatever you're offering, whether it's a male or female, bull, goat, sheep, whatever, it must be without blemish. And here's an interesting thing, because you know, 
we begin to realize before we come to Christ that we are not without blemish. And we begin to get hungry because we know we need, we need something without blemish to make us right with God. And then the pastor teaches us about Jesus who came and lived a life without blemish and then gave his life for us on the cross. And we say, right? But then some of us leave it there. Oh, I'm just, I'm only human. God's got this. And we continue to live life the same way we've always lived it. Turn back to Colossians 1. But I, I tell you what, before we do that, turn to 1 Peter 1. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse. Look, look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, the Jews living in all those areas. And Galatia and Asia are the two provinces right next to each other. Galatia is the first one you get to as you come through Syria and you start round and heading towards Rome. Asia is actually where Ephesus and Colossus Colossae really are. And we're in Colossians talking to the Colossian believers. And Peter says, okay, to those of you Jews who have been dispersed into all of these areas, you are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and, whoa, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now watch what he says. Blessed be the Father and God and Father, the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, we get excited because we think, I'm saved, I got heaven, and that's all that matters, right? And that's what Peter's saying. You're excited about that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has bought you a living hope so that when you look forward to heaven, you know heaven is yours. But watch what else Peter says. In this you greatly rejoice in all that good news. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, now 
Now that you've accepted Jesus and his resurrection and you know that this hope of heaven is yours, guess what's happening? You've been put into various trials and you're grieving and you're having a hard time. But what's happening is God is reproving you and he's testing you like you do gold and silver when it's put through a fire. And he wants to find out what's the genuineness of your faith. Are you really truly his or are you not? This is Peter talking, guys. And we're hoping that after you're tested, at the end you may be found to bring praise and honor and glory at the revelation of when Jesus shows up. Verse 8, whom, whom having not seen, you love. In other words, you don't see Jesus now, but you've chose to love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Now of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating. When he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now listen, here's what he's saying. All the prophets pointed to this time. And as, the prophet, as God was speaking to the prophets and pointing them to Jesus, pointing everything to Jesus, you've got a Messiah that's coming. Here's sin, sin's the problem, but guess what? I'm going to send a Messiah. He's going to be a suffering servant. As the prophets were prophesying of all these things, they kept asking God, when is this going to be? When is this going to be? And the next verse says that God said, no, this is not for you guys to know now, but I'm going to bring him and it's going to serve this later generation. And Peter says, we are sitting in that later generation. We now know what time those prophets were indicating because it happened in our time. Verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. In other words, you, you better gird your minds for action. You better get your spirit into that Matthew 5 posture that says, I am poor in spirit. And you better recognize hunger and thirst for righteousness because I need obedient children not going back to what they were when I called them to myself. Don't return to your former lusts. Move forward in growth and maturity and holiness and getting to being without blemish. <coughs> as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy. Who called you? Who called you? Jesus, God, right? This is the same God that sat on the mercy seat behind the veil that they had to tie a, a rope around the ankle in case the priest died when he went into God's presence. It's the same God. God has not, you know, the Hebrews says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. 
And as this same God who was working then is calling you now, it says, He is holy, so you also be holy in some of your conduct. All. All your conduct. Because it is written, and he quotes from Leviticus 11.44 here, and 45, and 19.2, and 27. Be holy, for I am holy. Now I gotta ask you something. What kind of holiness are we talking about? Do what? Yeah, yeah, like, if there's different degrees of holiness... Guess what? He just clarified which degree he was talking about when he says, you be holy for I am holy. In other words, God's holiness is the holiness that he's calling us to, which means the standard is not down here. The standard's not even here or not even here. The standard is way up here. It's God's standard of holiness. And he doesn't say in some of your conduct. He says all of your conduct. The standard was not dumbed down. And I have a, it's, it's tough as a pastor to talk about salvation and to talk about God's gift reconciling us to him, but at the same time not dumb down the standard. And that's what happens so many times. We stand up here and say, oh, God loves you. Oh, God loves you. Give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. And what we end up doing as pastors is we're dumbing down the standard. And in that, we make Jesus' death worth absolutely nothing. God calls for holiness. And if we've been reconciled to Jesus, if he has given his unblemished blood to us, for our cleansing, he calls us to walk forward in that cleansing. You don't believe me? Verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in what? Whoa. He's talking to Christians here, guys. He's not talking to non-Christians. Conduct yourselves in fear because you are actually, <laughs> you have a relationship with the Father who impartially judges. He doesn't judge you based on how well your neighbor three pews up does. Or your neighbor across the street. He judges you according to His holiness and His righteous standard. And He says, be holy for I am holy. And you know what? In that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, a couple of chapters after chapter 5, actually says, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus gave the same standard. A 
Okay, so if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So what were you redeemed with? Verse 19, but with the what? As of a lamb, what? Without blemish, without spot. Hey guys, you're called to holiness. You were redeemed because a holy lamb without blemish and without spot gave his life for you. How dare we trample that grace and that mercy by continuing to live the same way we've always lived, making his death worthless and meaningless. How dare we? Colossians 1. Actually, before we go there, I, just real quick, I just want you to catch 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So he's talking to Christians and he says, let this be added to your faith. All of these qualities. Now watch what he says. For if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you'll be bearing fruit consistent with the truth that you have been given and accepted. Look at verse nine. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So what should you do? Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. What's he saying? Check your foundation. If you claim to come to know Christ and your life hasn't changed, you better look at whether you really did come to know Him. 
Are y'all with me? And if you read two verses further, it'll say, in this way, eternal life will be abundantly supplied to you. Guys, I've had to look at these in reference to my own life before because I watched myself being carried away by the lusts of my flesh constantly. And when I was reading through Scripture trying to get some sort of relief because I was hungry, I found those scriptures and it scared the ever-living daylights out of me. Am I yours or not, God? Really? Am I yours or not? Colossians 1, verse 22. It says, God reconciles us in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Now we talked about holiness and understand that's, that's not man's version of holiness. That's God's standard of holiness. We clarified that. Blameless means unblemished. Right? And if, if he had to pick an unblemished sacrifice, we're kind of getting at the same notions here. Unblemished. And then, without reproach, I love that word because it's almost like a flip side of what we've been talking about. It's nobody can accuse you of anything. You're without reproach. Nobody can accuse you of any wrong and sin. Now look, God reconciles us because that's what he wants to do with us. And we can try to dumb down the standard all we want to, or we can say, oh my goodness, there must be some misunderstanding here because that just ain't happening in my life. I'm only human. I mean, why is it in the Scripture, guys? Why is it there? So that we could push it to the side and say there's no way? Do what? It's there for a reason for us to live by, Tempe said. It's exactly right. So look. That's, that's where we are at the end of the sermon. And I gotta ask, how many of you are hungry?
How many of you are poor in spirit right now? This is a holy moment. What's our response going to be? I'm not going <coughs> to... delineate a specific response and ask you to come forward if this and if that and if that. But if any of you in light of hearing what we've heard this morning, need to come do business with God. The altar's open. Let's stand and sing. Can we not need four? Ninety-two? Two ninety-four. I'm sorry. Two ninety-four. you to understand that um, that when I come across passages like this 
in my own heart and mind, there's a wrestling. There's a fear. And, and the Bible actually says, we just read it this morning, conduct yourselves with fear, right? And so you know, we think of fear as a bad thing. And, 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 and here in America, because we're, we're, we're constantly pushing towards the American dream and ease and vacation and everything else, we're running from the things that are hard. And that makes it difficult to be a Christian. Because if you're always running from things that are hard, you're never going to be growing in your walk with the Lord. And fear is a good thing. As a matter of fact, and I've told you this before, amazing grace. T'was grace that taught my heart to... Right. And grace, my fears, relief. But you have to be hungry before you can get fed. You have to be thirsty before you'll want to drink. You have to be poor in spirit before you'll reach out to God so He gives you His Spirit. Does this make sense? It's a work of the Lord. Understand that I'm not the guru. I struggle. I get full of fear. If anybody wants to talk to me about anything, I will be more than willing to talk to you. More than willing. But let God do the work in you to make you hungry. Y'all with me? May he make us all hungry. Kenny, will you mind closing us in prayer? Father God, thank you so much, Father, we have a place to go, a church to go to, Lord, that we can study your word. Lord, understand what you want for us. Lord, just thank you for all you do for us. We praise you, Father. We give you honor and glory for everything you do for us, Father. Just pray that everything we learned this morning, that we take it out with us, Lord. May it be seen in us in everything we do, Father. We give you praise and honor and glory, Father. For it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.